Let's open our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 12. Today we'll study uh, verses 10 through 20, and we'll see that Abram's fear will lead to a great failure. Genesis chapter 12. When we were last with Abram, he had just exercised great faith in leaving the comfort and security of family and country to go to a land that was unknown to him, but a land which God had shown him. His wife, Sarai, at this time is in her mid-60s, and we're informed in Genesis 11 that she was barren. Nevertheless, God had promised Abram that he would make from him a great nation, which presumably meant that Sarai, although barren, would bear children in her later years. She was, after all, his wife. When Abram arrives in the land, the first thing he does is begin, is begin to fulfill the command that God had given him to be a blessing to others by publicly worshiping in the midst of a pagan culture. That required faith. That required courage. In Shechem, Abram built an altar in the very middle of what was presumably a center of pagan worship. When he moves to this area between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, he builds an altar and proclaims Yahweh. He preaches Yahweh. The, the English text says he calls upon the name of the Lord. And we saw that Martin Luther had it right this time. This is probably best translated or understood with the German word predigen, which means he preached Yahweh in the middle of a pagan culture. What faith, what courage this man had to leave a place where he was comfortable and, and he he knew people and he had family. Presumably he had financial resources go about 1,500 miles. You know how far that is? That, that's like from here to Montana. That's, that's, that's farther than Gus and Call went on their cattle drive. That's a long way to go with a family. Well, from Lonesome Dove, of course. That's a long way to go with a family. But he does it. He exercises great faith. It's great spiritual courage, this man, as we praised him last time, didn't we? We saw these two bookends of spiritual courage. He'll have it here, and he'll have another incredible act of spiritual courage in Genesis chapter 22 when he's told to offer up Isaac. This is a man of faith. In verse 9, which reads this way, And Abraham and Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. We finished with that last time, but... But I want to come back to it just briefly. In verse 9, we learn that Abram continued to move south. He doesn't stop. He doesn't get to settle in any one particular spot in the land, not at this point. And so he continues to move south toward the Negev. How much time elapses then between verse 9 and what happens in verse 10? We simply don't know. We can't say for sure. But in verse 10, we're told that a famine causes Abram to leave that area and then move on down further south or southwest to Egypt. This, the passage that we study today is really marked off in a bookend way. In verse 10, it says, Abram went down to Egypt. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it's going to say, and Abram went up from Egypt. So we have this geographical literary device that marks off this particular unit. Now, virtually no one faults Abram for going to Egypt. Where the text hints that he had no intention of staying there. He intended, he intended to sojourn in Egypt or to stay there for a while. But he didn't intend to settle in Egypt. Abram is not abandoning 
the promise that led him to the land in the first place. The reason why people go to Egypt is Egypt was not nearly as susceptible to drought and famine as was the land of Canaan or the land of Palestine. And it's because of the flooding of the Nile. If you, if you know your history or you know the, your geography, that part of the world, you know that, that the Nile regularly flooded. And we would think that'd be a bad thing. Certainly in Houston, we don't look forward to floods. But in Egypt, they actually looked forward to the annual floods of the Nile because the rains would, in other areas would cause the Nile to flood, and then it would overflow its banks and, and not only bring water to the surrounding areas, but many nutrients for the soil. So the soil all along the Nile River was regularly watered by the Nile and was very, very rich in that which it takes to grow good crops. In fact, in the times of the Romans, Egypt was the breadbasket for the world. Like there was a time that further south in Africa, in a, in a place that was known at that time as Rhodesia. At, at one time, Rhodesia was the breadbasket for Africa. And now in a sense of cruel irony almost, uh, Rhodesia can't even feed themselves. It's, it's, it's difficult what happened there, but that's why they would go to Egypt. Because there was plenty of food in Egypt. So in verse 10 we see, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So far, so good. So far we're observing a man of faith and a man of courage. But then we get to verse 11. And we scratch our heads and we wonder, what in the world is Abram thinking? Read with me now, verses 11 through 13. And it came about, when he came near to Egypt, he hadn't quite got there yet, but when he came near to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And it will come about, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please, say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. By passing Sarai off as his sister, Abram jeopardizes the promise of blessing by losing his wife to Pharaoh. But as we're going to see, there is good news here. As we'll see, God overrides Abram's fear with its subsequent failure and protects the purity of Sarah, or Sarai, for the sake of the promise. What is stunning to me here, and probably to you too, is how quickly spiritual victory can turn into spiritual failure. It's been said that we are most vulnerable for defeat right after a great victory. And that's true. It's true in other areas of the life, but it's certainly true in the spiritual realm as well. We see a football team one week achieve a hard-earned victory over a team that's perhaps better than them. And then what happens far too often the very next week? They play a team that's not nearly as good as they are, and they lose. And we all scratch our heads and say, how in the world can that happen? How could they beat this team and lose to that one? We may do well on a really, really tough exam in school. And then the very next day, bomb one that we should have passed easily. Peter. Oh, P Peter shines in making this great confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
and then turns right around. He does that in Caesarea, turns right around in Jerusalem, not that long afterwards. He says, I don't even know that man. I don't even know him. With a curse. We've all experienced, every one of us has experienced these kinds of setbacks. It seems to me that no one develops lifetime immunity to spiritual failure. It is true. We are most vulnerable to spiritual defeat right after we've had a great spiritual victory. We need to be careful. The text tells us then that Abram, when he's about to enter into Egypt, realized that the probability was that the Egyptians would recognize Sarai's beauty and kill it and take Sarai for themselves or for the harem of Pharaoh. We, we can't get around this. As much as we admire Abram, the plan that he concocts is a cowardly plan. No matter how you slice it, this is a cowardly plan. And yes, I know that it is his half-sister, all the half-truths there. We'll get to that in a minute. But no matter how you slice it, he is being a coward here. He's willing to sacrifice his wife to the harem of Pharaoh so that he would live. To save his own skin. Most of you know that, that Sarai was actually Abram's half-sister. So, so he's telling a half-truth about his half-sister there. They shared the same father, but they had a different mother. But they were nevertheless husband and wife. But telling a half-truth about his half-sister reveals his own fear, his spiritual failure. Right after this spiritual victory, we are so vulnerable, my friends. Right after this great spiritual victory, then he concocts this half-truth about his half-sister just to save himself. This is spiritual failure on his part. I think that's why the Apostle Paul uses Abraham as the model for faith, the model for justification by faith in Romans chapter 4. Because ha having read this text, we know that Abram, Abraham, is not perfect. That's why Paul says, well, how was Abraham saved? How was he justified? Was it by works? Well, if it was by works, he has something to boast about. But no, Paul says, no, it wasn't by works. Abraham believed in the Lord, and, it, and the Lord accredited to him for righteousness, credited that faith to him for righteousness. So this spiritual giant, and he was a spiritual giant. This man, Abraham, is still respected 2,000 years after these events by both Jew and Gentile alike in the days of Christ and Paul. He's still respected today. 4,000 years after the 4,000 years have passed since, give or take, since this event occurred. And he's still respected, but he wasn't perfect Abraham was saved by grace through faith alone, in his case, Yahweh alone, the same God, but he would have known the name Jesus. But he's saved by grace through faith alone, in, in what, who we would call Jesus Christ alone, in the same way you were or I was. He didn't earn his salvation. Now, a lot of our Jewish friends would think, think that he did, think, think that he was good enough to earn Yahweh's favor. It's simply not the case. And we can see it even upon a casual reading of the text. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in Old Testament to get that from this text. And if you, if you have any doubt, ask your wife on the way home how this would play out, if it was you that did that. No, he's wrong here. This is a spiritual failure. His sin is repugnant to us in any scenario, but it seems especially offensive 
in the light of what we've just seen about his greatness. When Abram takes a fall, he, takes, he falls a pretty far distance. But let's be careful. Let's not focus so much on Abram's sin in this narrative that we miss the application to ourselves. Sometimes we save the application for the end. Let me give it to you right now. We don't want to miss this. None of us, not a single one of us, are immune to spiritual failure. Nobody is immune to spiritual failure. I don't care what your level of maturity. None of us is immune to sinning. And none of us grow to a level of spiritual maturity where sin is out of the question. Where a particular sin is out of the question. Oh, you, you know one of the most dangerous things you could think, much less say? I've been a believer for a number of years now. There's no way that I could ever do that. Oh, yes, there is. I'm quite sure that there were many in Israel who didn't think David capable of adultery and of murder. And I'm relatively sure that David didn't think himself capable, but he was. We need to be ever on the alert to consistently walk in fellowship with our Creator, because when we wander away, anything is possible. I don't know what happened in Abram's life between the time he was in the Negev and when he got to Egypt, but something, something caused him to take his walk with Yahweh for granted. And had God not intervened, the consequences could have been devastating. It's interesting for me to note, maybe it is for you too, that the text doesn't record Sarai's response to this request. Knowing and understanding the complexities and the intricacies of the female of the species, like I do, I'm going to assume that a very interesting exchange occurred between <laughs> husband and wife there, but we're not privy to it. At any rate, what we need to know for sure is that the guilt here does not lie with Sarai. The guilt is totally laid upon the males in this narrative, both on Abram and, don't miss it, on Pharaoh. Sometimes people like to look at this passage and say, Look what Abram did to Pharaoh. Well, and he does deceive him. But Pharaoh takes whatever he wants in a very selfish way. Pharaoh had, what Pharaoh got, he had coming to him. So Pharaoh is not an innocent party here. The only one innocent in this text is Sarai. In the same way that when this, when this happens in other places, we, we believe that Bathsheba was innocent in her relationship with David because the text tells us that David took Bathsheba. We also understand that the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6 were innocent because we see that the sons of God took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So Sarai is not guilty. The text tells us that Sarai was beautiful. Some wonder how that could be. How it could be that the Egyptians would have been so taken with the beauty of, the, of a woman who was approximately 65 and take her. They have such a problem with that that they actually call into question the validity of this text. Say somebody must have just made this up. But there's no justification for doing so on a variety of levels. 
If the Bible records that she's beautiful, and it does, then she was beautiful, regardless of her age. For what it's worth, there's evidence, historical evidence from this period, and actually biblical too, that a woman's beauty at the time was measured by her eyes and her form. And Sarai was a beautiful woman. Now look at verses 14 through 17. And it came about when Abram came to Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman, Sarai, was very beautiful. Me'od. Remember when things were tov, they were good, and then they were tov me'od, they were extremely good. So, So actually, Abram short sells the beauty of his wife, really, She's extremely beautiful in the Egyptians' eyes. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Once again, note that the Egyptians didn't just consider Sarai beautiful, but they considered her extremely beautiful. And then, just as Abram had feared, one thing leads to another, and Sarai is taken by Pharaoh to be a part of his house, which we understand to be his harem. Pharaoh is not innocent. He is deceived, but he's not entirely innocent. Whether Sarai was Abram's sister or whether she was his wife, Pharaoh had no moral right to take her. This is absurd. Just because he's Pharaoh doesn't mean he can go and take whomever he wishes. Again, the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took for themselves. Same term. David saw that Bathsheba was a beautiful woman, and he took her, same term. But in all of these cases, something is wrong. In all three of these cases, men, males, are acting arrogantly and exercising their power over women. And in each of these instances, the volition of the woman is not even taken into consideration. So make no mistake, Pharaoh might have been deceived, but he is not innocent in this at all. Verse 16 is a very brief, but it's an important digression from the narrative, from the storyline. Abram is enriched in spite of, not because of, his actions. In spite of his actions, he is enriched. And it's not so much that Abram was favored by Pharaoh. Uh, The text tells us he treated Abram well for her sake. So it's not so much that Abram is personally favored by Pharaoh, but it seems as though Pharaoh is compensating Abram in some way for taking his sister. He doesn't know it's his wife, but compensating in some way for taking his sister. This is not the language that we would have expected if this was the traditional bridal gift that would have been given to one's family. It's different, the different language is used, but this gift appears to be something similar. Now, this is important because Abram goes, Abram has great faith, 
goes to the Negev, has to go to Egypt because there's a famine. No problem there. There's really no lack of faith there. You've got to go where the food is. No big deal. God had not promised him necessarily that he would stay in, in the land for that period of time. No problem there. And then he has this great failure where he goes and risks the, the purity of his wife, and he gets rich, richer on account of it. Now that's divine irony. It's one of the ways that we know that the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. It wasn't based upon Abram's faithfulness by any means. He's not being faithful at all, but he is enriched. The, the, the items listed here, sheep, oxen, and donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels, are all indicators of great wealth in that country. Now, we may not think so today, but in that day, that's how you measured wealth. His bank account overflowed. But while God doesn't discipline Abram, at least not in this text, he does come down hard on Pharaoh. God protects the woman that would bear the child of promise from defilement at the hands of Pharaoh. The covenant that was given to Abram was unconditional. And we see evidence of that here. I don't know how Pharaoh found out about Abram's ruse. The text doesn't tell us, but he did. And in his indignant mood, he asks three questions. What is this you've done? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her as my wife? Very rapid-fire question in verse 18 and then in verse 19. The text doesn't record what Abram's response was. I don't know if he stood there mute. I don't know if he tried to explain himself. If, if he said, well, you know, the, I, I doubt he tried to explain himself very thoroughly, though, because he would have had to malign Pharaoh's character in order to do it. You know, I've heard about you. I thought you were going to kill me when I came here. <laughs> so he probably doesn't do that. That would have got him in a little bit of trouble. The text doesn't record Abram's response to this pagan king's rebuke. But isn't it ironic? He enters Egypt as this great man of faith, just having had this incredible spiritual victory, and he leaves Egypt by being booted out of the country by a pagan king and being rebuked by a pagan king for Abram's sin. A pagan king who had taken whatever he wanted. That's, that's got to be pretty insulting to a man of faith like Abraham. I've been booted out of a couple places in my life. I'm not going to tell you those stories because you might think less of me. <laughs> but it's not very fun to get booted out. I will tell you one. I was in Vail, Colorado one time. It's 20 degrees below zero. 20 degrees below zero. My brother and I and a couple of our friends were in a, a dining establishment there. One of my, we, we also had all given up our coats when we went in to hung them in the coat locker. One of my brother's friends had a difference of opinion with one of the people that worked there. And so they decided they would throw us all out. I didn't even know what was going on. But it's the only time in my life I've ever been bounced by a bouncer. I got bounced by a bouncer at a restaurant of all places. And I'm thrown out into the street, not knowing what in the world happened, with no code, and it's 20 degrees below zero. I didn't feel real good about that. Probably no better than what Abram felt about getting booted out of Egypt by a, by a very pagan man who was full of sin himself and then being rebuked for his sin. Now, by the way, I did get my coat shortly after that, and we left Vail never to have returned until just very recently. 
So I, you only have to throw me out once. And, and I get my, I learned my lesson. But that's what happens to Abram here. Pharaoh throws him out of Egypt. That's pretty insulting for a great man of faith. Oh, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here, it could be translated, behold, here's your wife. Take her and go. Get out of my sight. Again, there's one other detail that you may be wondering about that the text doesn't tell us, but it's certainly implied here by God's timing. And that it, it would not appear as though Pharaoh had relations with Sarai. Just because she was in the, I'm talking about intimacy, just because she was in the harem, it didn't mean that, that he would have gotten around to her immediately. There were, there were dozens upon dozens, maybe even hundreds of women that would be part of that harem. So God protects her purity. He protects the line of the Messiah by not having it polluted by Pharaoh or any activity with Pharaoh. When Abram passed... Sarai off as his sister to save his own skin. He jeopardized the promise of the blessing by losing his wife to Pharaoh. Perhaps he rationalized, as we do sometimes, that God could do this in another way. I can almost, I can almost hear the thoughts that would have been going through Abram's mind. Well, you know, if I go down there, they're going to kill me. And after all, these promises were made to me. And so maybe if I give up Sarai, you know, I'll help God out a little bit here. And he can always bring me another wife. So maybe this seems, it's not the best course of action, but it's the only course of action that makes any sense to me, hon. <laughs> well, no, that's not how God works. The language of the Abrahamic covenant doesn't include getting rid of your wife and bringing somebody else in. No, that's not the language at all. That's not a man of faith. But he was so vulnerable. He had just had a great spiritual victory. And now he falls a great way into spiritual defeat. We often rationalize that there's a way we can help God. When things aren't going exactly the way we think that they ought to go. And so we, we get out of the boat and try to push it. We get out of the airplane and try to help God along by pushing the airplane along. God doesn't need our help in that way. He can accomplish his purposes without that kind of help. Thank you very much. Sometimes we just fail ourselves to trust God to fulfill that which he promised. And so we try to help God too. But it doesn't work that way. It never has never will. What God has promised, he will accomplish. His way, not our way. So thankfully in grace, the Lord intervened with these plagues and delivered both Abram and Sarai from the consequences of Abram's sin. And I leave you with this. We need to be ever so careful. We need to be on the alert, the alert to walk consistently in fellowship with our Creator. Because when we wander away from His fellowship, anything is possible. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this.
stunning illustration of what can happen when we let our eyes wander from you. When we try to rationalize and when we try to do things on our own, and if it can happen to Abram, oh, we know that it can happen to us. So help us by means of your Holy Spirit to keep our focus upon you day by day as we sang this morning, moment by moment, second by second. Let us not take our eyes off you even for a moment. Help us to be consistent in our spiritual life. And we know to do that, the Holy Spirit must have his way with us. So help us to submit to the Spirit's indwelling ministry so that we might glorify you today, tomorrow, and forevermore. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.